According to the Bible, the end has already begun. In the first chapter of his letter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says that Jesus was foreknown. In other words, he existed, he was known and loved by the Father, he was one with the Father. The Apostle John will tell us before the foundation of the world, but that Jesus has appeared in these last days for love of us, to save us. When Jesus died on the cross and, as promised, rose from the dead, the last days began, and we now live in the interval between the time of the Lord's first appearing and the Lord's second appearing. The reality of Jesus living, teaching, working miracles, doing all the things that He as the Son of God, as God Himself in the flesh could do, are well attested in history, and Jesus Himself and the writers of the New Testament continually point forward to His second coming as well. And in difficult days, the church of Jesus has always turned to prophecy, some for good reasons and some for reasons that are not nearly as noble. Because our world is extra chaotic in our own lifetime now, it has been worse at various times in world history, but these are probably the most difficult and uncertain days that any of us have ever lived through. All kinds of people have made a name, and frankly some have made a dishonest living talking about prophecy, twisting prophecy, and doing much more to alarm God's people than to encourage them and instruct them. I grew up in a home because of my, first my grandfather and later my father, who absolutely loved Bible prophecy, knew it well, taught it well. So I've seen the effects of living under the effect of last day's teaching. And for most Christians in most churches, they get it right and they use it faithfully and they do what the Bible says we should do as those living in the last days. A few others spend most of their time pointing toward prophecy to stir up alarm, to stir up anger, and sometimes even to sell stuff. I want you to see today that Peter, conscious of himself living in what he calls the last days, the end of all things is upon us, his tenor, his tone is entirely different. He doesn't point toward date setting, he doesn't have a word of anger or a word of alarm. Instead, he tells his readers, and he tells us some 2,000 years later, what we should do in those last days, what kind of people we should be, what we should be about. Look with me, please, in 1 Peter chapter 4. You'll see what I mean. 1 Peter chapter 4, and in this journey through 1 Peter, we have now reached verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. He's tying his first chapter with his fourth chapter. Peter's had one idea on his mind all along. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your, what's it say? Prayers. The first thing Peter tells Christians to do if they are conscious of living in the last days is this, we should get serious about prayer. And interestingly, prayer is usually the first casualty in the life of at least the casual Christian. 
in times of difficulty, in times of persecution, in times of uncertainty and suffering, it is often prayer that we lose sight of first. Jesus taught us in John 15 that He is the vine and we are the branches. In other words, it's a word picture of Jesus Himself being not an accessory to our life, but Jesus Himself being our life itself. Jesus is life to us. When we are told that we have eternal life in Christ, what that means is that we have Jesus who is life Himself. Eternal life is not some commodity that God pushes across the table for you to enjoy. It's not software that you download to make your life run better. What you actually receive is Jesus Himself. And the way Jesus expresses it in first century terms to people who would have been very familiar as He likely walked through vineyards while saying this, Here's the explanation, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And here's the part we don't believe. He said, apart from me, you can do, do you remember this? Nothing. And in actual practice, the way most Christians live, the way I live at my worst and most distracted, my sincere belief seems to be, in those cases, without Jesus, I can at least get started. In other words, I see that times are hard, I see that times are uncertain, I see that people are confused, I can see that I'm discouraged, I can see that I'm hurting, I'm going to learn more, think more, work more, resource with people, I'm going to plan and strategize, and we're going to get really, really busy. And that's not what Jesus said at all. He said that He is life, and that apart from Him, I can do nothing. What can a branch do severed from the tree? Nothing. What's a branch cut off from the tree? A stick. It's no longer a branch, it's just a stick. So it is with you apart from the life of Jesus. And here we're reading the letter of Peter, John's dearest and closest friend among the apostles. They've all had the same experience with Jesus. Peter and John have been with him at his closest mo- in his most difficult moments. They are three among the twelve that are especially close to Jesus, and the first thing Peter tells Christians to do, if they are conscious of living in the time where the end of all things is at hand, notice the connection, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, because we're at the end, be self-controlled and sober-minded. That's good advice, to be self-controlled and sober-minded. It's probably the most important thing you could keep your eye on as a disciple of Jesus. Particularly on social media, very few Christians seem to be sober-minded and self-controlled these days. They seem to be instead spreading conspiracy theories, spreading dissension, arguing with people, becoming argumentative, divisive, angry, fearful, you name it, everything except sober-minded and self-controlled. But notice, being sober-minded, in other words, being clear-headed and being self-controlled, according to Peter, is not the point. We are to be sober-minded and self-controlled for a purpose. For what purpose? Just read the Bible with me. So that we can what? So that we can pray. Pay attention. Keep your head. Keep your eyes open. Stay clear-minded, Peter says, so that you can pray. Oswald Chambers said this, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And most people don't believe that. 
we, and I do mean we, I'm starting with me, not pointing at you. We believe in prayer often as some kind of seasoning to magically brings God's favor on what we've already decided to do. You ever acted like that? You ever gotten so far ahead of God that you find yourself praying for something that you've been working on for days or weeks, asking Him to bless what's already in motion because you so decided it should be? What if we did that backwards? See, in looking at Peter and John and what they learned from Jesus, I've discovered with the help of someone wiser than I am, that we've completely reversed in terms of serving God and serving people, we often reverse the pattern of how Jesus worked. Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, Jesus, God in the flesh, spent time praying to His Father. When He was completed that time with His Father, known only to Him and to His Father usually, He then went to His disciples and taught and instructed them. Then He went with the disciples to the crowds. What are Christians doing? Generally, and especially in these difficult, uncertain, pressure-packed days. We rush out to the crowd, work our eyes out, get our heads kicked in, and then retreat to the disciples. Say, well, that didn't work. That was discouraging. That didn't go very well. We take each other's counsel, and when we still don't have a good idea, then we retreat in prayer and start asking God to comfort and bless us and send us forward. Completely reversed. Peter starts in the last days with prayer. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Last week, I gave you the illustration, I won't belabor it this week, that a pilot's first job in a time of crisis and a dangerous flight is to fly the aircraft. Peter tells us that our first job in a time of difficulty and crisis, if we are in the last days, is to be in touch with God, to speak to Him first. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, taught us this, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Prayer is a shield for the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. See, don't lose sight of the priority. We are so easily moved to action in 21st century society where information is constant. And the cry of the age is that somebody needs to do something, which we're finding out at all levels of life, the hurry to do something often results in doing the wrong thing and it being counterproductive and making the problem worse than it was in the beginning. Peter says to Christians, if you're conscious as I am as in living in the last days while we await the return of Christ, the first thing you do is keep your head not to work, not to be active, not yet. You can work and you can be active, but you keep sober-minded, you keep clear-headed, you stay vigilant, verse 7, you stay sober-minded and you stay self-controlled so that you can pray. Then he says in verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Let's think clearly about what that might mean so that nobody gets the wrong idea. 
Could Peter have possibly meant that love covers up wrongdoing and drags evil, dark, evil deeds into the darkness where people will not be discovered? Could that possibly be it? No. What does he mean? He says to these suffering Christians scattered across modern-day Turkey 2,000 years ago, like me, you and I are living in the last days. So, first of all, calm down, be self-controlled, stay clear-headed so that you can pray. That's your relationship to God. You begin with God first. Before you see the face of another human being to discuss the problem and discuss your woes, do that, please do that, but first, spend time before the face of God. See the face of God every morning. See the face of God in every new day that you're granted before you see the face of another person in prayer. Now, in relationship to each other, Peter says, now he turns to human relationships. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Love each other fervently. Love each other realistically. Make, in other words, the way I would phrase this is, we are in the last days to love each other in a way that the grace of God is visible. Not by covering up sin. That's not what he means. What he means is that when I am genuinely loved by God, am forgiven by God what I have done in committing sin against a holy God that we've just been singing about. One of the clear ways that I express my love for God and for you is to quickly forgive the offenses you have committed against me. That I will cover your sin with my own forgiveness. That I won't be part of corruption. There's constantly in the news Churches of all sizes and denominations of all sizes of influence being wrecked by the absolute scandal of clergy misbehaving, sexually abusing people, and the denomination covering it up. That is not at all what Peter has in mind. There are other Bible passages that speak clearly about that. He's speaking about these suffering congregations and these relationships between believers in the first century, hard-pressed by the Roman government, some losing employment, their family relationships frayed or already broken because of their faith in Jesus, if they have sincere, fervent, earnest love, verse 8, toward one another, what they will continually be doing is forgiving one another. They will be extending love, and I will be taking offenses and slights and misunderstandings from other Christians toward me and covering them in the love that God has first given me when He forgave me all of my sins. We're living in an age, perhaps you've heard this phrase of cancel culture. Have you heard it? Sick of hearing about it. It's an exhausting phrase, and it's an exhausting world. And here's what it means, I think. It means that people who don't like you or your ideas will dredge your life and find something stupid, sinful, scandalous, ignorant, foolish that you said however many long years ago, drag that into public, expose that to the whole world, and heap such shame upon you that you effectively get canceled. You get fired from your job. You lose all of your reputation. I mean, you're done. You're canceled. Happens all the time. 
Christians in community with one another are to live the exact opposite of that dynamic. And understanding ourselves to be forgiven everything by a holy God who holds righteousness and justice as his own character, who spares our lives and gives us instead the life of his own son and calls us his beloved children so that you move from someone who opposed God, who declared yourself an enemy of God, who was ignorant of God, who defied God, who denied God. You move by God's gracious love into a completely transformed relationship so that He is not only now your creator and your judge, He is also your Father. And He welcomes you into the warmth of His love, which for you will go on forever. Paul saying, God then, out of love, preparing things for you to enjoy for eternity that you cannot begin to imagine. That's God's love. And what Peter is saying is, you take the same love with which God forgave you, and you forgive one another. Verse 8, 1 Peter 4, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This week, in trying to come to grips with this verse, I spent some time reminding myself, and I would advise you to do the same, of the things that God has forgiven me. I thought of my cancelable moments of the things that I had done in my mind and with my body in all these years of life that are most shameful, that would most attract the indignation of God, and in some cases the indignation of other people. And I thought about those things, and I remembered them. I remembered, on the one hand, my ignorance that led me to behave that way, and other times, what's worse, not ignorance, but abject rebellion. Where my honest thought process was, I don't care, I'm doing this. You ever do that, or is it just me? <laughs> or you know quite well what the truth is, you know what you should do, but for your own reasons, you say, I'm doing it anyway. Anybody else ever do that? It's church, you can be honest here. <laughs> it's the last place you should be fake, actually. You're in the presence of truth himself, God, with heaven and hell, justice, righteousness, mercy, love, all hanging in the balance, all before you. And I was reminded this week in pondering verse 8 just how easily canceled I actually am. If I were called to account, I couldn't stand before you. No one could. One of the criticisms of the contemporary Christian church is that we're a bunch of hypocrites. In a certain way, they're absolutely right. We're all sinners. Not one person, to paraphrase David, could stand before God if his sins were marked, if they were accounted for. But can I remind you that Paul describes love in this way, that it keeps no record of wrongs? And the way God kept no record of my wrongs, my cancelable moments, is He put all of those wrongs on the account and on the life of His Son, Jesus Christ, who didn't do any of it. He was tempted in all ways, according to Hebrews, as I have been, 
with this beautiful saving difference. He didn't succumb one time. Everything that would cancel me was faced as a temptation by Jesus Christ, an external appeal for Him to please Himself and to live for Himself, as I have so often done, and He chose instead to please the Father who sent Him. And all of my sins and all of yours, all that guilt, all that shame was put upon Jesus. And Jesus went to the cross and died for sinners like me. And then, as Peter has been explaining to us in these last few paragraphs, he took his life back, announcing victory even to the dead, and then, having done that, gave me his eternal life. So I can be canceled at any moment by anybody who knew me in those days. Same as you. But the Father, for His own glory, to manifest His goodness and mercy, has chosen to remember my sins no longer, has chosen to put them as far from me as the east is from the west, and has chosen to throw them behind Him in the depths of the sea, to use some of the imagery of the Bible. It's forgiven. It's covered. It's paid for. Now, Peter says, because you're loved that way, Love each other earnestly and sincerely, and the way that you'll know is, are you covering one another's sins? Are you shrugging off offenses? Because Proverbs says that it is to a person's glory to overlook an offense, and that's not the culture we're living in today. You shrug it off easily? Do you remember that an offense against you by another person is by definition small in comparison to your offense against God? If you keep that in mind, you can love that person sincerely and no matter what they've done, remind yourself that they are just like you. A person sinful, broken, rebellious, brought back by the redeeming love of God, and if the one you both call Father chooses to call the, bo- the, the two of you His children, certainly you will not hold against them offenses that the Father no longer remembers. That's what it means in verse 9 when we're told, in verse 8 rather, to love each other sincerely. We love each other in a way that makes the grace of God visible. Then verse 9 says, show hospitality to one another. What's it say there? Don't you love how honest the Bible is? (laughs) Hospitality is one of the cardinal Christian virtues. And one regret that we've had as a family, and I intend that to change in the years ahead, for reasons I won't go into, it's just been hard in the last several years for us to open our home as we would like and as we did for many years. Things are different now. We hope to be much more hospitable in our own home and opening up our lives, and our, I'm talking about the Garner family, opening up our lives and our time to you much more than we ever have. It's Christian. In fact, 1 Timothy 3 specifically says that pastors, among other things, should be hospitable. The Christian gift of hospitality to welcoming another into your life and even your home is at the heart of the gospel because it brings people beyond an arm's length relationship. It brings them close. 
In the first century, it was vital because the only way the good news of Jesus was spreading everywhere Jesus said it should out into the nations is that Christians receiving little or no financial support from others were going far from home to tell other people that Jesus really had died on a cross and risen from the dead. What they depended upon, especially in those days, is the welcoming, warm, providing provision of hospitality by other Christians. So Peter says, keep it going. Be hospitable. Keep welcoming one another without, he says, what? What's your Bible say? Because that's the limit of hospitality, isn't it? Like the old story of the family who invites, Christian family who invites another family over. And they're very proud of their seven-year-old son because he's kind of a precocious prayer guy. Say, buddy, would you say the blessing? I don't want to. In that situation, if your kids ever say they don't feel like it, just let it go. Cover their sins with love and and keep moving. (laughs) On this occasion, the father, determined to show off how spiritually and theologically precocious his child was, said, come on, buddy, you pray beautifully. Pray for us, please. I really don't want to. And his mother said, well, just just pray the way you hear me pray. I said, okay. (laughs) Put his head down and said, oh, Lord, why did I invite these people over? That's the limit of hospitality. That's where we've all been. I stayed with my brother, my wife and I were missionaries. We stayed with my brother-in-law in Houston for a little over a week because that was the nature of our time in Houston. And on the day after we left, he called me. He said, I had a dream that you were still in my house. (laughs) That's not Christian hospitality. The opposite of that is what we're seeking for. Here's why I think this is important and practical and timely. Because of the pandemic, we learned to live even further apart than we already did. And I preached this exact passage to you with largely these same truths about two years ago to you. This sermon sounds familiar. It's because I've already shared a great deal of it. If it sounds very similar, it's because that's what I find in the text. Sorry, can't help it, can't make stuff up. And one of my invitations to you back then was this. When this is over, let's be as hospitable as we always should have been. That's what we're after. One of the great blessings that this church has, and I've been actually lagging behind them, is that this church has been blessed by a staff that is hospitable that welcomes people into their lives and even to their homes. This is essential in the last days. You see, in the last days, Peter seems to believe that you will not only need to be before the presence of God, that you will need to be in close contact with other Christians. That you will need to have such close relationships that you will be, at least occasionally, offending each other and sinning against one another. And Peter says, the answer there is not to pull apart, but to keep your love so earnest and sincere that you cover one another's sins, that you forgive each other and you make the grace of God visible. The natural extension of those relationships is, if we are that close, of course we're opening life and home to other people. To everybody? Of course not. It's not practical. I don't know how many people call Crosspoint home, but it's certainly well over a thousand 
We can't all be tight. We can't all know each other well, but you need a few close brothers and sisters here who know what you're going through and will immediately go to your side because they already know what you're suffering through in these last days. That's what we need to do, to love each other in a way that makes the grace of God visible. Then verse 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Peter teaches you here something fundamental to Christianity. Every Christian has a gift from God, at least one. Along with the eternal life of Jesus, Jesus gifted you in some way to serve fellow Christians. You may have many gifts, but you have at least one. And unlike every other gift that you've received at your birthday or at Christmas time, your gift is not actually for you. Your gift from Jesus is actually meant to serve other people. And he has two different kinds of groups in mind. Watch it. Verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. In other words, there are gifts of speaking. In a lot of different ways, some people have been gifted by Jesus to speak God's Word to other people. That's one big category. It's not an exhaustive list, but Peter has in mind two different ways that Christians serve each other. Some people will actually do both, but everyone will do at least one. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. That means that the point of serving one another through speaking is to speak God's Word, not whatever your opinion happens to be. The fourth thing that Peter says here for those Christians living in the difficult, suffering-soaked last days is we are to serve one another with the gifts that God gave us. And whoever speaking, speak as the oracles of God. That's why I hope it's evident that at least in this role, not when I'm just joking around and telling you one of my endless stupid stories for which I am so well known, when I'm speaking to you with an open Bible, when I'm speaking to you as a Christian about things that matter, I hope it's evident I always want to do so as one who is opening the very Word of God to you, not giving you my half-baked opinion. Folks, I don't know that much. One of the burdens of the pandemic is I was asked a thousand questions and many times the honest answer was, I have no idea. None of us have ever lived through this. I didn't even know some of these categories of problems existed. What can I know? What can you know? You can know the very Word of God. And you can say, well, I don't know about any of that, but I know that's not what God has for us. Christians, Peter is telling us here how to act, how to behave, what to do. And we are, those of us who speak, we are to speak, verse 10, as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In other words, those who are serving and speaking are both doing it beyond their capacity and beyond their own opinion. They're doing it with the Word of God and the strength of God. If I can get really practical for a moment before I'm done regarding this third service. We call it a service because that's what it requires. A lot of service. 
On any given Sunday, any given service, about 100 people serve this church family. From the parking lot to the Sunday school room to the nursery. We're going to need more Christians serving if we're actually going to have three services. If you're not serving in some capacity, could I just invite you in the name of Jesus to make yourself available? To not preemptively say, I don't have the time? To not preemptively say, I don't have those gifts? For one thing, you have no idea what we're going to ask you to do. (laughs) Honestly, we're not entirely sure ourselves. We've never had three services on a Sunday morning. What's the point? To have three services? Because that looks cool on a website? Not at all. The point is to welcome more people. People who are already Christians who need to be discipled in the name of Jesus and people who don't believe the gospel who need to be saved from a righteous God and saved by a loving God so that they can have the eternal life of Jesus himself. What it will take is service. Everyone at this church that calls Cross Point home, if this is your home, even if it's small, even if it'll never make the bulletin, even if it doesn't have an official name, everyone who's part of this church family should immediately be able to say, these are the people that serve me and these are the people that I serve. I have a role here and this is what I do. It may never make it in the bulletin. We may never make a movie about you. But you're part of this body too. And under the head of the body, which is Jesus Christ, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, Jesus putting the members of the body where he wants them to be. You serve, you support, you love, and you are loved. It's going to take all of us. And this is exactly what Peter had in mind, that we would serve with the gifts that God gave us to this end, for this purpose. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In other words, church, in the last days, here's what we should be doing. We should seek God in prayer and serve one another in love. That's how you live your final days. That's how you live the hard days. You start with God and you seek His face. And because of the grace that you encounter there, and because of the authority and the strength and the goodness and the holiness that you find in your God when you seek Him in prayer, of course you turn to others. And you love them. And when they offend you, you cover it with your love and with your grace. Since they had so little love and grace towards you, you do what Jesus did for you. You preemptively love them and forgive them. You serve them. Even to the point of opening your life and your home so that you can be closer together. And so that what we talk about so much will be a practical reality wherein we are the family of God. This is what we should be doing in the last days, seeking God and serving one another. Let's pray. Could I ask you to stand with me, please? Two diagnostic questions to talk to the Lord about. Christian, how's your prayer life? Do you begin with God?
Second, are you in love serving other people? I'm not talking about your family. That's a given and that's important too. I'm talking about the community of Christians called the local church who Peter was addressing. Christians who only had this in common, that they belonged to Jesus. Torn by politics, confused by suffering, pushed out of families. That was their experience. It's the experience of many Christians today, maybe yours. Are you being served here? Have you found a welcome, hospitable, loving environment that reminds you of the family of God? If not, I regret that. I'm sorry for that. We'd like to change that. But Christian, are you that person? Are you in close relationships where your disposition is to serve and forgive others when they offend you? Way too easy in these days to pull back, make it all about a screen, have distant relationships, fashion your relationships on convenience rather than commitment. Let's not be that church. We never have been. God's blessed us and grown us and helped us in so many ways. Let's reaffirm our commitment that in these last days, we're going to seek God and serve others.